if you have your Bibles, just turn to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at chapter four, and then we're going we're going to go back to Judges. First Thessalonians chapter four, that passage of scripture that Pastor Brad got through reading, and again, I invite you to pull out those message notes, and let's pray one more time. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share this word and make it applicable to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to continue in my series that I started a couple Sundays ago, and um, we want to look at this particular subject this morning. I just have to tell you that this is one of those subjects that when a, when a guy talks about it, when a guy preaches about it, when he teaches about it, you're really going into a landmine. You're really going into a landmine because you never know what landmine you're going to step on because this is a very, very sensitive subject. And this is a subject that, quite frankly, the world talks a lot about, but the church very seldom ever talks about that much, I find. And uh, so pray for me as I'm making my way where angels don't even tread to go, so to speak. (laughs) But did you hear the story? Did you hear the story about the lady that surprised a burglar in her kitchen? There was a lady that surprised a burglar in her kitchen. She was home alone, and there was no weapon, and she did not know what to do. She thought, all they say a scripture out loud. All they say a scripture out loud. She shouted out, Acts 2.38. And instantly, the burglar froze into his tracks, just froze right in his tracks, would not move. The police soon arrived, and they were absolutely amazed at how this woman could do this. They asked the burglar the question, what was it about the scripture that had such an effect on you? He said, scripture, what scripture? I thought she said, an axe and 238. That's kind of corny, I know. But sometimes, sometimes, Scripture means different things to different people. Sometimes, Scripture means different things to different people. Acts 2.38 becomes an Acts and 2.38. 2.38. When the Scripture says that we are to abstain from all sexual immorality, it really means from all sexual immorality. It really means that. It really does. All, not most, not a little, but all. And again, this is a very difficult subject to talk about and to preach about. But did you know that God has given us a full range of emotions and He's given us a full range of drives and He's given us a full range of appetites. We have natural, God-given appetites for food, shelter, companionship, fellowship, and also for sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy, just to name a few. These are normal, and these are God-given. However, however, because of the old carnal nature that we've talked about for the couple weeks, because of Satan, because of sin, because of our culture, these normal, God-given drives and appetites can become abnormal cravings and addictions, and they can lead to a tragic end. A tragic end. The late radio personality, Paul Harvey, used to tell the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. The account is grisly, 
and yet it offers fresh insight and understanding to the consuming self-destructive nature of sin. First, he would often say, the Eskimo coats his knife with the blood, an animal blood, and allows it to freeze. Then he would add another coat of blood and allow that to freeze, and so on and so forth, until the blade is completely concealed with the frozen blood. Next, the hunter would fix his knife with the blade up, and when the wolf would follow his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers that the bait, he, he begins to lick it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. And he begins to lick it faster and faster and more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, he laps it until the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp edge and the sting of the blade on his tongue, nor does he recognize the instant with his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Now, I want to stick very closely to my message notes more than usual because I don't want to say the wrong thing with the wrong attitude. Again, these are normal, God-given appetites. But if we're not careful, they can come become abnormal cravings. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the way that people often get caught up in sexual immorality today. Russian-born Petrum Sorokin, which was the first uh, professor and chairman of sociology back at Harvard University, we're talking about decades ago, he was an astute observer over time. His book, The American Sex Revolution, pulled no punches as he developed this theme. Our civilization has become so preoccupied with sex that it now oozes out from all pores of American life. Grieved over an ever-increasing appetite for the sensual, Dr. Sorkin, he did a masterful job of describing their moral erosion of a nation that was once pure and proud. And I'm quoting right now from his book, Excerpts. He writes, In the last century, much, much literature has centered on the personalities and adventures of subnormal and abnormal people, prostitutes, mistresses, street urchins, and criminals, the mentally and emotionally deranged, and other social derelicts. There has been a parallel transmutation of the experience of love. From the pure and from the noble are the tragic. It has progressively de-evolved. The common and the prosaic but usually illicit sexual love that is portrayed in literature of the 18th and 19th centuries has, in the last 75 years, increasingly been displaced by various forms of abnormal, perverse, vulgar, picturesque, exotic, and even monstrous forms the sex adventures of the urbanized cavemen and rapists, the loves of adulterers and fornicators, of masochists, sadists, prostitutes, mistresses, playboys, entertainment personalities, juicy loves, its, its, orgasms, and libidios are seductively prepared and skillfully served with all the trimmings. Now, since Sorkin's book has been written, and that was uh, decades ago, Unfortunately, our culture has degenerated way beyond what he could ever have imagined. Porno shops are now in every 
major American city. Hardcore X-rated films are now available on pay, uh, cable television as well as some of the larger hotels. And uh, pornography, uh, soft and hardcore pornography has been spreading on the Internet like wildfire. And if you don't think I'm exaggerating, I read in one particular instance where one man spent a total of $25,000 in one month on Internet pornography, watching it 24-7, day after day after day with little or no sleep. It's a wonder that he didn't have a heart attack. No wonder that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. Look at it with me one more time. It is God's will. If you like to circle in your Bible, circle that. God's will that you should be holy. The most recent NIV translation says sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. Now, like a pastor, like a pastor that's concerned for his flock among whom he ministers, Paul encourages people to be sanctified. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be holy. We've defined that for the last two weeks. To do more than just give nod, a nod toward sexual purity. To give more than just a casual nod toward sexual purity. He comes out and he commands them to abstain from all, all, circle that word, all sexual immorality. This is God's absolute standard. It is high. It is up there. There's no compromise. This is the word of God. He says, this is it. And the phraseology, sexual immorality, can be translated in the original Greek, uh, porneous or porno, or where we get the English word pornography. You say, Pastor Ron, when the Apostle Paul talks about um, no sexual immorality, what is he specifically talking about? Well, sexual immorality translated from Scripture means absolutely no sexual immorality. He's talking about no premarital sex. You say, that's really crazy. Everybody's got to try one another out before you get married these days. And yet all the studies that have been done bear witness to the fact that people do, that do cohabitate together before they're married, they have a more likelihood of divorce than those people who don't. All the studies bear it out. And yet our culture says and insists today that you live together and have sex before you're married. He's also talking about no extramarital sex, no adulterous relationships. Outside the marital bounds, you're not to have sex with another person. And no homosexuality, no, more, no homosexual relationships. Let me digress right there. I have friends. Yes, I have friends. I have extended family members. You do too, perhaps, that you know that are caught up in the homosexual lifestyle. They know 
I love them. There's not a shadow of doubt that I am any that I have one bone in my body that's homophobic. I love those people. I have ministered more than one occasion to people who are dying of AIDS. I've been on their deathbed. But this is the biblical standard. They can't understand it, and I can't understand that they don't understand it. But this is the biblical standard. Often the church is one or two steps behind the culture. And you know where our culture is at today. They're condoning. And uh, through books and movies and television shows, homosexual relationships. But this is God's absolute standard. No pornographic or graphic materials whatsoever. No acting out with lustful thoughts in the mind. Thoughts come in and go, but as Martin Luther said, you don't allow the birds to build a nest there. Paul is saying that sexual intimacy and these kinds of things are to be between a man and a woman in a committed monogamous relationship. The church should be the champion of moral purity. This is God's absolute standard again. Why? Because this is what God wants of us. The Bible says that our bodies belong to God, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're not allowed any part of our body to become instruments of unrighteousness. And the benefits of sexual purity are numerous. First of all, you don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. And believe me, sexually transmitted diseases are on the increase more than ever today, especially among young adults. You would be shocked. You would be surprised. You would be absolutely flabbergasted if you knew the latest statistics and studies. You don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies. Number two, you maintain your intimacy with God, your love for the Lord. The reason why you should abstain from having premarital sex and extramarital sex and homosexual relationships is not because some pastor tells you that it's this thing you should do. It's because you have a conviction yourself from God's Word and you understand out of your love for God. It's my love for the Lord because I don't want to drag His name through the mud and because He tells me that this is what he wants for me that I want to do this. And then number three, there is security and there is intimacy and there is trust and it's allowed to flourish in a monogamous relationship between a man and between a woman. I want you to look at those verses one more time with me. Verses uh, three. It is God's will that you be holy, that you Avoid all sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. Again, Paul says, you need to be set apart, you need to be holy. In this sex-crazed culture, how can a young person, how can a person that is married keep themselves pure? Turn with me back to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. We're going to now look at the story of Samson, which we'll be looking at this week and next week. This is a two-part message. How can a person keep himself pure in a sex-crazed world? I want to give you the background on this person called Samson. Samson 
was a mighty warrior. He was an eagle that became a turkey. He was a he-man with a she-man problem. Contrary to a lot of people today, he could not blame his mother and his father for his problems. Samson had a godly heritage. He had a secure home. He had loving parents. Let's look at uh, Judges chapter 3, 1 through, uh, thir- chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Notice, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man by the name of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites who had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, You are sterile and you are childless, but notice you're going to conceive and have a son. Verse 4, Now see it that you, he, that you drink no, uh, no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat meat, anything that's unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor will be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart uh, to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This particular young man um, was to be named Samson. Now, the first thing we understand and the first thing we get is is that he was raised by godly parents. He was raised by godly parents. And in ancient days, a woman that had a bare womb, that was a stigma. That was something that was a stigma against that particular woman, not having a child. So she was absolutely elated when God visited her. She was going to have a baby. In addition to the heralding of the birth of Samson, the angel also revealed the purpose of Samson's life. Did you hear, did you read that in that particular section of scripture? Samson was going to lead his people away from the influence of the Philistines. And the Philistines at this particular time, they were dominating, they were overrun, so to speak, they were overrunning the Israelite people. And their culture was influencing the Israelite people. Instead of worshiping God Almighty alone, they begin to worship all these other gods that the Philistines were worshiping. And they begin to practice, the Jewish people, they begin to practice some of the things that the Philistines were doing. Also, we're talking about some of their sexual escapades and all those kinds of things like that. And so Samson was given a direct order. The parents were told that he was to lead the people the Jewish people, away from the influence of the Philistines. He was to be a mighty warrior used of God. Now, Manoah was a godly Jewish man surrounded by godless people, most of whom were influenced by the Philistines. But not this man. He sought the Lord in prayer, and as a father, he asked God. Notice in verse 8 with me. Manoah prayed, to the Lord. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who was to be born. In other words, bring the angel back and teach us, instruct us how to raise our son in the ways of God. They wanted to know the right steps. This is an ideal place to digress for just a moment and to give a word to those of you who are parents. Being godly parents, trying your best, asking for God's help and wisdom, does not necessarily mean that your children will live godly lives. 
They have a free will. And they have a free choice. Unfortunately, there is no greater pain and there is no greater ache than in the heart of a mother or father whose child deliberately walks away from the Lord. I've heard it. I've heard it. There's no guarantee. They have a free will and they have a free choice. You could be the best parent in the world. You could have done everything that you're supposed to do and there is no guarantee because they have a free will and they have a free choice. So, number one, if you feel guilty because your children are not serving the Lord, let it go. You did the best you could with what you knew and what you know. Number two, put them in God's hands. Because the last chapter, perhaps, is not written on their life. Because God has a way of getting people's attention. Amen? Let's go on here. The Scripture tells us that Samson grew. He was born, and he grew, and his godly mother and father raised him the best that they knew how. They asked for God's wisdom. He doesn't have any better parents than he could have had. But as he grew up, little by little, the boy's character was being chipped away by the culture, by the Philistine influence, by his own choices, and the erosion was silent and it was steady. By the way, before we get further, we should point out that Samson was raised to take the Nazarite vow. We got through reading that. He was to be a Nazarite. Not a Nazarene, but a Nazarite. According to the law of God, whoever took such a law maintained a strict adherence to three disciplines. Number one, first of all, he watched his diet very closely and he was not to consume any alcoholic beverages. And number two... Number two, he never was to touch anything that was dead. He was not supposed to touch a dead animal, or nor was he supposed to touch a dead human being. And the third Nazarite vow was he never was supposed to cut his hair. And since God revealed to his parents that Samson was to be a Nazarite from the womb, these three requirements was drilled into him. He was raised in the things of God. Samson was raised by godly parents. They taught him about God. They taught his purpose for living, what he was supposed to do when he grew up. But the next time that we read about Samson, we find him fully grown. He may be fully grown physically, but he is not spiritually and emotionally mature. We immediately get a... a, a um, detect a character flaw. He possesses a passionate, lustful drive that will not and cannot be controlled. Judges chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Notice, look at with, with me. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and he said to his mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. 
Now get her for me as a wife. The first four recorded words that came out of Samuel's mouth, the first four recorded words that we hear that he's saying as an adult, as a young man, was this. I saw a woman. I saw a woman. And that became his modus operandi, so to speak, throughout his entire young life. He saw a beautiful woman. And that's the story of his life. He focused on the wrong objective. You really don't want to go down the slippery slope of lust and sexual immorality. First of all, number one, we must control our sexual desires. We are sexual creatures. God has created us that way. But we must not allow ourselves to go down the slippery slope of living just for the lust of our sexual desires. And number two, Guys, we must learn to handle our eyes. Handle our eyes. Let me digress for just a moment. And I want to go to another place in Scripture. And I want us to keep your finger here in Judges. And I want us to flip over to Job, if you if you'd like to. Job. And I want us to go back to, 30, I think it's 31. And let me just tell you a little bit about Job. Remember the story? Satan came to God one day and he said, the only reason that Job serves you is because you've blessed his life and let me test him. And God said, he serves me because he's blameless. He has a pure heart and you go ahead and test him. So all of these kings from Satan came against Job. He lost his health and he lost his wealth and he lost his livestock and he lost his family, everything else. And he came out through flying colors and he's still pure before the Lord. This is the background for the story of Job. Now, what we don't understand is, is that Job was blameless before God in every single area of his life. Even when it came to what he looked at and what he allowed himself to stare at. God has made men to be attracted to women. That's true. Men are attracted to women. We love the beauty of a woman. And there's nothing wrong with recognizing that beauty. Nothing wrong at all. But I've noticed that before we were Christians, there is a habitual thing that happens with most men. They look at a woman, and they look again, and they look again, and it becomes a real problem. After becoming a Christian, we be given a new nature. And we need to restrain our eyes and our mind. How could Job be blameless in this particular area? Well, in Job 31.1, we see Job made a starting, startling revelation. He said, I made a covenant. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. You mean he made a promise with his eyes? not to gaze upon, not to stare lustfully at a young woman or women in, in general? Yes, he did. In fact, in the story of Job, it, it, we think that's absolutely crazy. That's impossible. It cannot be true. In fact, he swore upon his wife and marriage that if he did this, if he looked lustfully at a woman with his eyes, he would let another man sleep with his wife. 
That's startling. That's absolutely crazy. You cannot imagine that. And yet, that's exactly what Scripture says. He made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Not Samson. Nobody was going to um, curb his sex drive. Nobody was going to curb where his eyes looked. Samson focused on the wrong objective. Chapter 14, verses 2 through 3. Notice, when he returned to his father and mother, he said, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnia. Now get her for me as a wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your own relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is the right one. Do you understand what this particular passage of Scripture is saying? Samson was saying, I don't care about her character. I don't care about her spiritual life. I don't care whether she worships other gods. I don't care anything about that. I like the way she looks. She has sex appeal. She's a sexy woman. And all I'm interested in is her body, not her character. He could care less. She looked good. That's all that mattered to him. Now, this is a good time to be very candid regarding the issue of physical attraction as seen through the eyes of men and males. Did you know that there's an incredible difference between the sexual appetite of a man and typically the sexual appetite of a woman? And Dr. Dobson, the much-respected professional psychologist, you know, before he retired, focused on the family, he writes really helpful words regarding the two major differences. And, and I'm, I'm reading what he, what he wrote. He says, first of all, men are primarily excited by visual stimulation. They are turned on by the female body. Um, Phyllis Diller said she had the first peekaboo dress. Men would peek and then they would boo. <laughs> Women, by contrast, he writes, are much less visually orientated than men. Sure, they're, sure they are interested in attractive masculine bodies, but the physiological mechanism of sex is not triggered typically by what they see. Women are stimulated primarily by the sense of touch. Second, and much more important, Men are not that very discriminating in regard to the person living within the exciting body. That's why a man can watch a scantily dressed young lady walking down the street who shimmies past to him. He's attracted often just to the body itself. Likewise, that's why a man can become excited over a photograph of an unknown nude model as he can face-to-face encounter with someone he loves. In essence, the sheer biological power of the sex drive in a male is largely focused on the physical body of an attractive female. But women are much more discriminating in their sexual interests. They less commonly become excited by observing a good-looking charmer or by the photograph of a hairy model. Rather, their desire is usually focused on a particular individual whom they respect or admire. A woman is stimulated often by the romantic aura which surrounds her man and by his character and by his personality. End of quote. So Samson's opening lines are a classic example of Dr. Dobson's observations. For Samson, the only thing that mattered was satisfying his lust. The man was driven by one of the most natural and powerful drives in the human male. Now I can, I can imagine some of you are thinking, we talked about this last week, does this mean 
then I'm lustful even to consider physical beauty. Am I wrong to look at a woman's beauty and be attracted by it? Absolutely not. Thank God that you're a man, that you're attractive, uh, attracted to a beautiful woman. My point here is, is that Samson's was physically attracted to her body alone. That was all that was to it. And that's the four-letter only. And that's what it's so important to understand that. So if we want to avoid sexual morality, lust in the heart, we have to learn to look and then glance away, to train our eyes. And you see, before we became Christians, we were not that discriminating, and we took the second look, and we took the third look. But now, as a Christian man, we read in the book of Job that Job made a covenant with his eyes to glance away. That's a beautiful woman. Wow, she's beautiful. But I'm not going to look and dwell and unclothe her with her, my mind. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. And ladies, Dr. Dobson's advice to you about be attra- being attracted to a man who appeals to you emotionally and romantically, peers, co-workers, people that you work with, that's valuable advice as well. Because there are people around you that will encourage you, stroke you, Watch that one-on-one time, those innocent hugs, the sharing of problems, the touches, the warmth, the companionship, the comparison of your husband with the charmer at work. Well, let's go on here. We're almost finished. So let's talk about number three here. Number three. In order to avoid sexual morality, our leisure time must be guarded as well. Our leisure time must be guarded as well. And I'm going to move this sex through this section very, very quickly here. But we read in, in chapter 14 later on, we read that this fellow took this Nazarite vow that was not supposed to touch anything dead. He kills, he kills an animal. I think it's a lion there. He kills this lion and he comes back a month or so later and there's a beehive in there and there's honey inside of it. He's not supposed to touch it. But he's bored. He's a big old galoot. All he's always interested in is partying. All he's interested in is look, finding another woman, chasing another skirt, so to speak, and he's bored with life. And so he comes along and he finds this carcass of an animal. He's not supposed to touch it, but he knows there's honey in there. So he gets it out and he scoops it out and he has a bunch of honey and even gives it to his folks, but he doesn't tell them that it came from a dead corpse. And then we read, and then we read that next passage of Scripture, we read that old Samson, guess what? He got bored with this lady that he ended up marrying from Timnia. And so he's spending time with a harlot over in Gaza. And then the next thing we read about Samson is, is that he's spending time in Sork with a lady called Delilah. And we all know how that ends, and we'll talk about that next week. To remain sexually pure, you have to watch your leisure time. You just have to. The reason why a typical man, usually it's a man, sometimes it's a lady in our culture, in our world today, I don't know why. It's just what's happening in our world. Maybe the reason you're having such a hard time remaining sexually pure is that you're feeding your eyes and you're feeding your brain during your doubt time with images through books and through movies. 
and you're looking at perhaps pornography on the internet, and studies have been done, the brain in such activity releases a chemical, and you get some sort of chemical high, especially people that are prone toward depression, they get instant stimuli when they see, especially men, when they see a nudity and pornography in any form or shape or whatever it may be, and it just gives them an instant rush. But the problem with that is, besides this initial physiological stimulus that they get, is that they've done studies and you need more. And pretty soon it goes from a half hour to an hour to two hours, and pretty soon if you're a married man, you no longer want to have sexual relations with your wife. This is terrible. This is awful. This is terrible that I even have to talk about this, but this is reality. This is the world that we live in, and it affects Christian men and also some women as well. You have to watch your downtime. Tiger Woods and thousands of other people who spent time in those sex addiction clinics will tell you that they started off through movies, television, soft porn, hard porn, more porn, and then they got to they got to the place where they had to act it out. And it's been a real problem. And if you've been a pastor for any length of time like I have, you've heard all of the stories that you cannot believe from Christian men and women, often lay leaders, even pastors. You have to guard your leisure time. Do you remember what the angel told Samson, what the purpose of his life was going to be, his mother and father? He was to begin to deliver Israel, but the man was mainly into pleasing himself. And this, again, continues on. I want to finish my message next Sunday. Next Sunday we'll wrap it up better and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll share some more principles and we'll review just a little bit. But I, I want to close with this uh, particular story. How, I just want you to be honest. You don't have to be ashamed of it. How many of you uh, liked Elvis Presley and his music? Come on, be honest. In my mother's womb, in my mother's womb, I remember Elvis Presley singing that song, Love Me Tender, Love me sweet. Heartbreak Hotel. As a little kid, a child, that, that, those Elvis Presley records were being played all the time. My mom was a young mother and she grew up in the 50s and that was her idol. Her musical idol, Elvis Presley. I know all about Elvis Presley. Thank you very much. I probably know too much about that man. I'm in, I know everything about him. You know what happened? Two years ago, they did a television special on the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. I don't know if you remember seeing that, that television special. I watched it. And there was one particular thing that his former wife Priscilla said about Elvis Presley. You know what she said? She said, Elvis loved women. The context, a lot of women loved him. And he got around. And when I heard that, my spirit was grieved. And I thought to myself, how sad that was that he would never ever know the wonderful relationship that he could have had between he and his one wife.
he missed out. Contrast Elvis Presley with a man by the name of Charlton Heston. He just died recently. Did you know that? And did you know that at Charlton Heston's funeral service, his son stood up and with no exaggeration and with no pause whatsoever, he said, my father was the finest man bar none that I ever knew. He was the finest man I ever knew. He said he loved us kids and he was faithful and loving to my mother always. Charlton Heston was interviewed. He was interviewed by one of those talk show hosts a number of years ago. And they basically said, um, Charlton, your marriage has lasted all these years. It is well known that you have a good, joyful marriage with your wife and that you have never slept around. It's well known. Everybody knows that. It would never happen to Charlton Heston. The person asked him, he said, why? What's the key? What's the ingredient? And this is what he said. He said in so many words, I made a commitment. I made a commitment to my wife. I took that vow seriously. And then he added, he said, when you have steak at home, you don't look for hamburgers somewhere else. Probably the best thing that you could ever do for your marriage relationship is to have a healthy one. That is the best prevention against sexual immorality. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before You in prayer this morning, we ask that You would help us to retrain our eyes. Retrain our eyes. If we have not done so, to make a 